0: You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart, And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse.
1: Hi everyone, I'm just popping in your ears briefly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all over the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the Weekend that tends to focus on Indigenous texts and Subversive Seminary during the week which focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group who are currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We record these episodes in community, and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate by being part of our Patreon community. If you're one of our patrons, you can listen to extended conversations with extra questions included such as this.
2: What jumped out to me, I guess, as I read it as me, a Muslim myself, um, was that while God isn't explicitly mentioned, God just seems all over it to me. And I think you know, it seems God's all over it because you know we're reading that story in in retrospect, so we can see how everything played out perfectly. And you know, um, Esther did the right thing, and she was put in the, this position for the right reason. And it just happened to be that the king got insomnia and asked for the court records to be read to him, which reminded him that Mordecai did him this favor. Like you see, how even in these tiny little things, God was stitching knitting everything together for for this this good outcome of protecting the 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 jewish people um and i so to me it seems like you can see god all over it and it makes me wonder like if all of our stories at at the end of our lives if our entire life story was written down similarly and in 500 a thousand two thousand years people were reading that story if they too would go oh it was so obvious seeing god's hand all over that like At the time, they thought they were in this terrible position and it was awful and none of it made sense. And yet we can see as their story progressed, God's hand was over all of it.
1: All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you follow, rate and review this episode in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode.
3: Well, I am excited about our guests for today. I'm sure some of you might wonder, how does a sociologist read scripture? and uh, I guess we're gonna find out today. Our guest is Elizabeth Corver-Glenn. She is a sociologist who studies, writes, teaches, and speaks about many things, most of them, in some way related to racism, white supremacy, or urban neighborhood inequality, propelling it all with the aim to do justice. Um, Elizabeth is currently an assistant professor of sociology at the University of New Mexico, And again, her research touches on a whole range of stuff related to racialized housing markets, segregation, race and religion, and police violence. And her newest book is Race Brokers, Housing, Markets, and Segregation in 21st Century Urban America, which was published by the one and only Oxford University Press pretty impressive. Wow. Uh, welcome, Elizabeth. So glad to have you um, here on the podcast, though you are no stranger to the Inverse Collective here. And so welcome uh, to the conversation.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Uh, awesome. Awesome. And uh, Elizabeth, um, do you have a, a particular passage that you'd like to read to start us out with and kind of set the tone for our conversation together?
4: I do. Uh, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter eight, starting in verse five and continuing to verse 22. And I'm going to read from the living Bible with maybe a tweak here or there um, because pronouns and things. Um, Okay, let's get started. Um, When Jesus arrived in Capernaum, A Roman army captain came and pled with him to come to his home and heal his servant boy, who was in bed paralyzed and racked with pain. Yes, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Then the officer said, sir, I am not worthy to have you in my home and it isn't necessary for you to come. If you only stand here and say, be healed, my servant will get well. I know because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. And I say to one, go and they go, and to another, come and they come, and to my servant boy, do this or that, and he does it. And I know you have authority to tell his sickness to go and it will go. Jesus stood there amazed. Turning to the crowd, he said, I haven't seen faith like this in all the land of Israel. And I tell you this that many Gentiles, like this Roman officer, shall come from all over the world and sit down. In the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and many an Israelite, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, shall be cast into outer darkness into the place of weeping and torment. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go on home. What you have believed has happened. And the boy was healed that same hour. When Jesus arrived at Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law was in bed with a high fever. But when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her and she got up and prepared a meal for them. That evening, several demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus, and when he spoke a single word, all the demons fled, and all the sick were healed. This fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. He took our sicknesses and bore our diseases. When Jesus noticed how large the crowd was growing, he instructed his disciples to get ready to cross to the other side of the lake. Just then, one of the Jewish religious leaders said to him, Teacher, I will follow you no matter where you go. But Jesus said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I, the Messiah, have no home of my own, no place to lay my head. Another of his disciples said, sir, when my father is dead, then I will follow you. But Jesus told him, follow me now. Let those who are dead care for their own dead.
0: What a text. I mean, what don't we have? In there, we've got Roman military. We've got demons. Uh, we've got insiders cast out, uh, outsiders brought in. Um, Elizabeth, oh, we look forward to opening that up with you. But we're interested um, with that standard inverse question: When do you first remember encountering the Bible?
4: Well, uh, I don't have. Um, oh, I have exactly two memories um, of. Not encountering the Bible <laughs> before the age of four, um, and uh, really the all of my childhood was saturated uh, with hearing the Bible. I grew up in a um, pretty stereotypical white evangelical space, and not only that, but I was the or am um, um, the oldest daughter in a family. And at that time uh, that I was growing up, my dad was a pastor, so. Um, I can't. I I really can hardly remember not hearing the Bible. Um, wow. It's very much a part of my my upbringing and and part of um, almost all of my memories.
3: Hmm. Are there? I'm curious if there like are there any particular like stories that are like really gripping, like that stick out to you when you think about that? Or is it, is it really just this kind of ongoing kind of just it was just present like a family member.
4: Yeah, I mean, uh, when I was four, I have this memory of my my mother basically presenting to me the the Romans Road, um, and I think many of your listeners might be familiar with that. But it's a a, um, a kind of a traditional white evangelical way of picking specific verses from Romans that lead one to a particular view of. Um, penal substitutionary atonement and, um, <laughs> and, and what it means that Jesus died for us um, and to really kind of elicit a, a sense of, oh my gosh, I must respond to this somehow right now. Um, and so I actually, I, I did that. I mean, I, as a four-year-old, I already had this sense that, oh my gosh, like Jesus is a really amazing dude and I don't want to like mess this up. Um, and so, you know, I, I remember praying a very kind of traditional sinner's prayer with my mom, um, at that time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's one, one kind of story. Um, and there are many others like it, you know, I, I remember, you know, my, um, Bible memorization was a big part of, you know, family life growing up. And so um, there was a time, I think it was around 12 or 13, and uh, my dad had picked uh, multiple scripture passages um, that he really wanted my brother and I to um, memorize. And um, and so we had kind of like a little contest about it, basically, <laughs> um, to, to memorize scripture. And um, yeah, and I always remember uh you know no, knowing the podcast and 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 you know having participated before i i won't like anticipate too much of a, of a future question but you know i have memories i'm saturated i was saturated with it as a child and um, adolescent with understanding and knowing that jesus was my refuge um and and i remember spending a lot of time in the psalms and and things like that as well so yeah, lots of scripture in that context.
0: Jesus really missed an opportunity with this centurion for the Roman road.
4: Yes, <laughs> That's right. he sure did. Oh, somebody
0: who would actually understand Roman road analogies. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's
3: right. That's right. Yeah. It's it, as you talked about your childhood, you did bring a memory up that I haven't had in a while, which is. Thinking about, um, I was also a PK and raising a family where scripture memorization of scripture was pretty significant. So I, I just remembered, like, we um, my parents like had this candy and they were like, "If you memorize, you know, Psalms 23, you get to grab this candy." Anyway, I just have this memory <laughs> that just came back out of nowhere. Um, yep. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I get at least some of what you're talking about, um, some mm-hmm. of those experiences. Um, that was certainly important for our family was just this sense of just being saturated, right, in scripture and allowing that to kind of shape one's life and imagination. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I appreciate that. So so I'm curious then, as you think, can you look back um, and think about your childhood and since then, like, would you describe the way that you were, um, you know, the way that scripture was read, interpreted, encountered, spoken about, like, was it liberating? Was it oppressive? Was it something else? Like, how were you, how were you experiencing it? And how would you maybe interpret some of that stuff now?
4: Yeah. So I, I, I think I would have to say both. Um, You know, I, growing up, even, even still today, I, I know this is true, but I was a very curious, very um, deep-thinking um, little girl growing up in the South, and uh, that is not. Um, uh, there's there's not much of a place in this world, I think, for <laughs> for uh, for girls and women who ask questions, who are curious, who push back, who um, aren't satisfied with particular answers, and um, and the Bible, my family, the church I grew up in were in many ways a a safe space for me. I, I, you know, even, even when I would have negative experiences at school or playing sports or whatever, because I was very, very much, um, the, the quintessential like nerd, (laughs) um, probably still am, (laughs) but I don't, I like embrace that part of my identity now. Um, but, but growing up, I, I didn't, I, I, I constantly was getting messages of, you know, that I was somehow wrong. Like my being was wrong. Um, and, and so, you know, as I said, Jesus was my refuge. I, you know, I took refuge in the scriptures and uh, my family, I always felt safe in my, my family um, with my siblings, my parents, um, and, and often in, in church as well. Um, and I've continued, you know, even, even into my like adolescent and college years, I went to a white evangelical college, um, in part because I loved my parents so much. Like I respected them. I still to this, to this day, respect them so much. I kind of wanted to follow in their footsteps. I was the oldest child. I thought, you know, this is something I need to do. So, so it was that, um, it was, it carried me in many ways. Like that's, that space kind of carried me and allowed me to persist in, in who I was. And uh, as we know, um, white evangelicalism is uh, a terrible place for women. Um, often um, it's a misogynistic um, place. It's a, um, often a racist space. Um, and so I, uh, I definitely experienced a lot of that, um, you know, in particular, as I moved through like adolescence and, and into college and started to ask even more questions. Um, so, for example, you know, I remember taking a class in college and I I think it might have been called Women in the Bible. And I'm pretty sure that the, that the woman professor who listed it had like. Had to call it that or something in order for the, the college to approve this class being taught, um, but it was only women in the class, which was telling. Um, only women signed up, registered to take this class, and in um, our final term paper was, um, you know, we had to basically talk about whether or not we had decided that we were complementarian. Or egalitarian and for those of your listeners who don't know those terms complementarian basically very like generally broadly speaking is this idea that that god created women to complement men and ergo women do not lead in church spaces or family spaces
0: and it's egalitarian- the gender theological equivalent of segregation right like separate but equal
4: yes very similar yeah. to that
0: right. yes Yep.
4: um and egalitarian being oh men and women whatever you know like god created both of them to um to lean into their calls to do you know whatever god's created them to do in every space whether that's church family whatever that's very simple a very very simplified kind of breakdown but mm-hmm. that was their final term paper for the class and as you can imagine at this um at at the university that I attended, in the college library, all of the commentaries, what did they lead me to believe? I didn't—I wasn't learning Greek or Hebrew. I wasn't, it, like I didn't have any of that training yet. Um, and all of the commentaries, all the research I did, all that curiosity that I had, it kept leading me to the foregone conclusion of complementarianism. And I remember sitting in my, I remember sitting in my, my dorm room and I called my dad on a landline, which might date me a little bit, but I called my dad on a (laughs) landline and I was sobbing. I was just so distraught. And I remember him picking up the phone and I could like barely, I could barely get it like out of my mouth. And I said, dad, why did Paul say the things that he said? Why did he say it? Because I didn't have the I didn't have the tools I didn't have even though I had tried I tried so hard with the tools I had available to me to make sense of it to make sense of who I was who I knew that God was calling me to be and these texts these and the, and obviously the translations and the overlay of all the commentaries and interpretation and all that hermeneutics and my dad just said I don't know um, to his credit you know in that moment I I feel like that was um, he wasn't a hardliner, at least when it came to that issue. I'll say that. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, experiences like that continued. So long story really short, I decided to go to seminary because I didn't want to read the text through the lens of the commentators always. I wanted to be able to learn um, Greek, and I wanted to be able to to do it myself. <laughs> and so um, I went to a, a seminary, um, which was uh, also an evangelical seminary, but it was widely known for um, being very rigorous in terms of um, the languages, um, biblical languages. And um, I was one of a handful of women who enrolled in the program uh, when I started, uh, took beginning Greek, and I was the, the way that, that one, it, took Greek exegesis was you had to take a test at the end of your beginning Greek. And then you got placed into uh, basically like tracking, like schools track children in the United States. Like you get placed in the, you know, the gifted track for Greek or you get placed in the uh, kind of middle of the road. Track. For dummies. Or or yes, or the, or the kind of like lower end track. They li- That's literally how they did it. And so I took, I took this Greek test. I was the only woman that tested into the advanced Greek exegesis class. And I took that class the next year and, you know, I'm sitting there. I I love languages. I love learning. Again, this is part of who I am. And the, the, the white male professor asked the class, you know, what it was, what is the verb in the um, when when Jesus is talking about, you know, the great commission, you know, go make disciples, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, baptize in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's the, what's the, what verb is the command in that verse? And I didn't want to answer because I knew how it was going to go by that point, but nobody else answered. So I raised my hand and I, you know, answered correctly. And then the professor basically berated my male colleagues in that class by saying, by essentially like shaming them. He said, you know why is it why is it that you aren't getting this why is it the the only woman in this class that's getting it um oh, and nice. you know so it's you know i obviously um by that point i had started to understand um, the 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 harms uh, that you know white evangelicalism perpetuates against women by that point um and i also had I had my what I would call like my true conversion experience when I was 22. And my eyes were being open to, uh, I think, not coincidentally, um, issues of racial injustice in those spaces mm-hmm. as well. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's always been both and for me. And many of the experiences I had when I was a child, I would also kind of read back through that lens now of like, oh, that wasn't just a quirky personality or someone, you know, having a bad day. That was, that was part of the, the culture of treating, you know, women and girls and, in, and, in, in specifically um, misogynistic ways.
3: Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's interesting because, you know, it's the one. So as someone who also attended a Christian college, it's interesting because sometimes when people start talking about their experience in Christian colleges, I'm like, yeah, that was my experience in my story, but the one difference that I always feel like I had, which was so different than many others is that for me, it was actually precisely my my, my faculty, uh, my departments, right? that were leading us to question and challenge all of these things that we had come to know, right? Um, In fact, I tell this story in Trouble I've seen about, you know, Dr. Finger, right? Who, now the students had a terrible perspective of, right? She's this feminist, this dangerous feminist, right? And I didn't know what that was, so, you know, But, but she's helping us to read the text differently and to ask different questions. And that's pretty much what most of the folks in our department did. And so on one hand, like culturally on campus, we definitely had, I think, a very similar experience, right? In terms of what I say, Christian colleges in that level are pretty much all the same, (laughs) right? At least in the US, I should say. Um, But on the other hand, like in terms of in the classroom, um, you know, you can't teach at Messiah and, and support uh, complementarianism. Like you're not even allowed to, it's, it's official, it's in the books, right? That's not, it's not allowed, you couldn't. So it's interesting to hear you talk about like this foregone conclusion and all the resources pointing in that direction, yeah. right? Um, forcing pigeon holding everyone to kind of read and interpret the text in that one narrow way. And so, um, wow, that's powerful to think about. Just the impact that it has, how many generations of people, right, have come through yeah, exactly. that yeah. and have been shaped and uh, bolstered in, in their confidence around that kind of reading. Yeah,
4: yeah. and just to, I mean, I, this just came, I just had this memory while you were talking. There was actually one woman who took that class with me who came into the class as an e- egalitarian. Um, she already had that stance. And all the rest of us had kind of said, yeah, soft complimentary, You know, we don't know yet. And by the end of the class, it was so rigged that the egalitarian had switched. No. To complementary, yes, that's how rigged wow. it was. I mean, you're, you're all the, literally everyone. all the resources yeah. that we had available to us, and you know, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't even really have wor- words for, huh. for bo- how. In fact, I I think part of why I became a sociologist is because I had so many years of pent up and suppressed and denied, ignored curiosity, um, curiosity blocked, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that you know that's that's where some of that energy has come from, um, and I really do thank God for certain professors I didn't have entire departments, but you know I, I'm thinking of one specific professor I had um, in college who absolutely made all the difference in in helping kind of put a spark in me um or or light a spark that was already there and had been tried to be snuffed out by others. Um, similarly in seminary, my my advisor in seminary is still to this day a mentor of mine and is an incredible person. And without his help, you know, I probably would have been in a much worse spot. Right. So you know there were these specific People um, along the way that I credit a lot of my journey to in terms of you know shaping uh, particular trajectories and things like that, but overwhelmingly, as you know, as as you know, the cultures of places can um, make a huge difference in terms of how how we see ourselves, how we see the world, how we interact.
0: My goodness, yes, Elizabeth. As I listen to you, like and you share. And really like that experience of gaslighting and then calling when anybody puts their head up and goes, what is that smell? And why do I feel dizzy? And people going, oh, that's the gospel. You, you have all the reasons to leave. Like you have all the reasons to go, I'm um, out. Um, and and uh, not merely personal, but um, intellectual as well. Like you're exceedingly bright and we're able to find. I'm fascinated. Um, why? Why stay? Why do the work to um, transfigure and transform those abusive experiences? Um, And what gifts, what um, tools, you mentioned tools a number of times, what tools have you found for um, reading the scriptures in such ways that um, uh, do put a wrench in those things which um, are crush women from the inside out, um, in terms of who they are, their worth, their gifts, their their talents, um, uh, and their reimagining of society in a way that doesn't, um, deny the image of God in them or others. Mm -hmm. Would you share a little bit around, um, those tools that that you found and the why behind it?
4: Yeah. So, uh, the why is, it's just Jesus. I mean, Mm -hmm. The love of Jesus has captured me, um, captured as a bad word. It's, it's, it's overwhelmed me. It's, um, it has never let me go. And Mm. that's, that's the why, uh, when I was, when I was 22, uh, I, I actually, for the first time knew that I was beloved by love
3: Mm.
4: and, uh, that has made all of the difference. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say I haven't railed against and complained about and vented about uh, all of the spaces that are so problematic, continue to be so problematic. Um, I even tried to persist a little bit in in the sort of like white evangelical church world a little bit after all of that. uh, I tried specifically to work on raising awareness of racial injustice, of actually like teaching in white evangelical spaces about the harms of white evangelicals. As you can imagine, that didn't go over very well. (laughs) Um, um, About misogyny, about, you know, just so many ways. And, And it wasn't because I was thinking, oh, I just, I need to be right. It was, this is how we love this is Mm -hmm. Jesus's love and that we are supposed to be living out. And, and so, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the why for me Uh, in terms of tools. I I actually approach a, a lot of my faith, a lot of, you know, reading scripture, my, my current journey with similar tools that I actually do my my day-to-day work as a sociologist, and that might sound a little bit weird, but I think it's actually me being maybe what a psychologist or psychiatrist would say, like, integrated, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, which basically I I do the the kind of the fancy phrase for it in um, uh, uh, like sociological terms is abductive analysis. Um, And breaking that down, it basically means I come to the text, I come to my faith, I come to Jesus, and I say, here's who I am, here's what I know, or here's what I think I know, and I'm honest about that. And I, and I uh, celebrate that, like I bring myself as a gift, um, which I think is a, a really big deal um, for people who've been harmed in church spaces, yeah. Um, to, to know oneself as a gift, to know oneself as the image of God and to bring that to the text, to bring that to one's faith. And then, uh, and then after that, you know, when I'm, when I'm like analyzing data, I say, okay, what are my biases? What am I assuming is true? What do I think I know is true about this particular phenomenon, whether it's like segregation or uh, racism or whatever. And then I look at the data and I say, okay, what is, what is something new? What's something surprising what confirms what I thought I knew? What's contradictory? What challenges me? And I do likewise um, with with my faith, or in church spaces, or uh, in you know in reading scripture. Uh, and I've become really suspicious of of readings of of the text, of readings of scripture that just simply confirm everything I thought I already knew, right? So if if I'm not a little bit challenged, if I'm not a little bit uncomfortable, then maybe I'm not really getting what's going on here. Yeah, yeah um, right. And then, and then I ask, okay, so, so now that I've kind of taken in this like new information or I've, I've, I've had this, you know, this encounter with, with Jesus, or this encounter with God scripture. Now, what, what does this mean for me? Uh, what does this mean for how I write, for how I understand the world, for um, how I perceive myself and others in relationship? Um, and, and that has actually been really, really transformative for me over the last decade or so. Uh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have talked about it necessarily in those terms 10 years ago, but I, I think that is what I had started to do. And I think something like that could, could be helpful for anyone who's, you know, experienced the kinds of harms that we often hear about um, in in faith places and and not just white evangelical spaces, but those being the ones that I came from, I can speak more confidently about the harms that are perpetuated there.
3: Wow. Yeah, that's so good, that's so good. I have a little secret that I don't talk about much, but when I was in seminary, towards the end of my MDiv program, um, and I was thinking about PhD programs for the very first time, I started looking at sociology programs because <laughs> I didn't I didn't necessarily feel like I didn't know how to fully address all my questions um, from within theology at that moment. And I had a professor, one of my mentors, who said, Drew, you're a theologian, don't run from your car. So he, he wouldn't let me go. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, he wouldn't let me go. And then it was from that point, then I was like, I need to dig even deeper, right? And ask my questions from within, but, but I, was, I was on the verge, um, um, but I appreciate the kind of questions that you bring to the text and how that, out of your own lived experience, you ask these questions that it's so easy to just reaffirm what we already believe. Yeah. Um, and I'm always I, I tell folks that you know, like, and that's like I you know sometimes I get associated with you know what often is called Christian progressivism, right? But I, I often tell folks like, for me, like, I'm there's I have a lot of, um, I guess we'll, oh, we'll just call it epistemological humility, which is to mm-hmm. say, I question myself quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. That I. I'm not so confident that everything that I believe or whatever is legit. You know what I mean? Like I have a feeling like come 20, 30, 40 years from now, some of the stuff that I've been thinking that I was so sure about, I'm like Drew was off. What was he thinking? You know what I mean? And like <laughs> to have that kind of sense um, that where I'm not too quick to just, you know, just stand firm on everything. Not There are some things I'm very, adamant about, especially it relates to harming others, but my capacity to know, right, that it, mm. I've got to be able to question that. Um, and anyway, so I appreciate just the angle that you come to the text with and with your faith, um, that we don't just re-bolster everything that we come to know, um, but we're willing to continue to grow and to and to allow this shape what we see and how we live and how we interact with others. And so, yeah, it's really important. Um, So I'm really intrigued to see and hear you uh, again, like how does a sociologist read scripture, right? That was a question I kind of started (laughs) off with. I would love for you to walk us. And so we can have a conversation together around Matthew chapter eight, five through 22.
4: Mm. Sure. I'm, I'm excited. I really am excited to, to play in the text. And I, I guess this is, this isn't the first time I've, you know, done uh, a Bible study as a, as a sociologist, but it's the first time I've done, I've, you know, walked through this passage and it was the first one that popped into my mind when you invited me drew. And I was like, what, why is, why is this, you know, why is this the one that's coming to me? Um, But I uh, am, I think a little bit Pentecostal and, and thought that was probably the spirit telling me that. So I decided to pay attention and, and, uh so I sat with it for a while and this this is what we're going to do. So um <laughs> I I think a lot about home. I think a lot about housing. Um I think a lot about shelter. Um and so I I don't think that it's uh I don't think it's it's you know a, a coincidence or a mistake that this passage came out. In fact I was even surprised the more I read it, the more connections I was making about house and home. So that's what we're gonna, what's, that's what I'm gonna focus on. Um, I, I have some ideas about what, what Jesus thinks about home as it is and as it should be,
1: hmm.
4: uh, and what Jesus thinks about the ways people often do home that he calls out. Um, and I think there's some interesting ways that this text um can, can um help us with that. So uh what and is I'm probably
0: can I ask? Yeah. Um uh, I- I'm aware with the text that you've chosen. I mean we've just been talking about how sometimes um these social oppressions get concentrated in the sanctuary but I'm um, I'm aware that uh the the Academy isn't a, a oppression free space and that some of the uh, <laughs> <laughs> some of the uh uh assumptions, um, even in terms of the discipline of sociology, that it's it's having somewhat of a moment internationally as um, uh, certain sociologists um, have just been revealed that um, their interests have been uh, limited and not taken into consideration a whole number of intersecting oppressions that hasn't shown up in, in their work. Um, I raise that um, as a way of kind of um, uh, f- for those who are working through religious trauma, there may be others who are working through academic trauma uh, yeah. when it comes to um, uh, being parts of their analysis that come out of their lived experience being yeah. denied. Um, as as a way of naming a few of those things, this text that you have chosen is, um, And not necessarily now, but at some stage, I would be very interested to hear um, readings of this text that um, uh, that that younger you who was tempted to um, uh, uh, throw in your own analysis and experience and instead accept the complementarianism like your friend who was the only other egalitarian in the class did. What are the temptations with this text read through the lens uh, that you were offered before where you are now? Does, does that, and it's almost yes. unfair for me. We don't usually ask that of, of other guests, you know, um, for me to put you on the spot. Um, but as a sociologist, I'd be very interested yeah. because of the what you are attentive to. Yeah. Uh, what are the dangers with this particular text and how it's been read? Yep,
4: Yep. absolutely. And if I don't bring it up, I, I have thoughts about that. Um, yeah, great. So Thank remind you. me if I don't get to it, okay? Okay. Um, okay, so... So the passage is—I skipped kind of the first part of it, but because the the um, the Roman soldier specifically is talking about home and um, and the servant that he has at home in bed um, paralyzed, and, and he and he wants Jesus to come heal him. But um, just before this, um, there's. Uh, another healing story um, that happens immediately after Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount. Right. Mm. And, um, and so to me, a lot of this passage is Jesus saying like, okay, we have the wise person who who listens to my instructions and builds their house on the rock. And here, now I'm going to actually like show you what that looks like. I'm going to actually like do the things that I, that I told you about in the Sermon on the Mount. So, um, so I think there's a few things going on here. So when when Jesus, you know, is talking to this Roman soldier, Jesus is like, Oh my gosh, yeah, I'm gonna come to your house and I'm gonna heal him. And the first thing that sticks out to me about this is that the soldier is like, No, no, you can't come in my house because you are superior to me. And and what this tells me, and Jesus, and Jesus kind of like rolls with that, he's like wow. Okay. I'm not going to like force my way into your house, but what this tells me is that, you know, there's, there's this kind of intimacy and this, this equalizing nature of what a home can and should be. Right. And the soldier knows that by inviting Jesus into his house, he would basically be sharing that space in a way that would violate his sense of like, no, well, Jesus is like better than me. Jesus can't like share the space with me. This is my intimate home space. And, and, and I think that G- by Jesus accepting that he's in part saying, yeah, like the home is a space where, you know, we, we are, we are equals. And I think it's also really interesting that the servant is in bed in his home like he's, he's taking care like his his servant seems to have also be participating in this like equalizing home space um and i think it's really interesting that um he the 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 roman's folder also goes on and talks about how like this whole thing with authority and um and you know i understand what it's like to be under authority and he's it's almost like he's emphasizing like listen we're not on the same plane and if you come to my house, that means we're on the same plane. And I can't, I can't accept that. And I think that tells us something interesting about how we can view home um, in, in American culture, not just American culture, but it, it's very, very potent and, and, and particularly in white American culture, the home is the 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 fortress basically. It's the the place that protects Uh you from all those outside people. And only the special people get invited in. um, Only usually it's only the other like the other white people (laughs) that are invited into the white family space, right? Um, because it's understood that the home actually when we share that space, we share that that um that intimacy, that there's something that kind of brings us to the same level. And I don't think it's any accident that housing and by extension neighborhoods in, in the United States and not just the United States, but Canada, many areas of Europe, even Australia and New Zealand um, and other places where there's a who can concentrate themselves do so um, because they understand that the home is, um, is it, it's a place of, of, at least it could be a place of intimacy and shared um, humanity. Mm. Um, so that jumped out at me. So then we keep going in the text. Um, and, and Jesus is, he's, he's amazed and, um, and he calls out this, um, you know, the faith of this Roman soldier and he's essentially drawing another Kind of image of what home is, which is a table, a shared table um, of food and drink um, with others. And um, he he's talking. He's he says, you know, um, this many Gentiles like this Roman officer shall come from all over the world and sit down in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And many an Israelite, those for whom the kingdom was prepared, shall be cast into outer darkness, into the place of weeping and torment. Now, this is one of those passages that I think is dangerous, at least like as a a sociologist, when I read this, I'm like, oh, this easily has been, at least in sermons I've heard. um, And I could easily imagine it being an anti-Semitic text um, that's really, really problematic in terms of um, how it's read and interpreted um, as like, well, the Israelites and the Jewish people rejected Jesus. So, you know, they get kicked out. Um, I've he- actually heard that preached before, um, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. Um, and in fact, as I was reading through this and kind of um, praying through it before we started, I, I was actually thinking about the, the parable of the, the prodigal son and kind of reading this and thinking about it in, in parallel to the, the parable of the prodigal son. And I was thinking about the angry older brother. Uh, I was thinking about the angry older brother who, who chooses not to participate in the festivities of, of the father who's throwing this party for the son that's come home. And um, and I think that what, I think that the picture that Jesus is painting here is of of w- whenever people close their doors, when people close their homes, when there is not enough proverbial or actual room at the table, um, we are almost in effect. We become like this this older brother where we're just like kind of outside the actual house where the party's happening, and we're missing out because we miss the whole point of the home is to have that shared intimacy, to have that kind of, um, connection to share food and drink, to meet material needs, um, and, and to make it as broad and inclusive and loving as possible. Um, so yeah, this, I've, I, 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 I can't do a deep kind of exegesis of this passage, um, in part because, um, I haven't, polished my greek in a really long time. Um, I know there's a lot of competing interpretations of of this passage but I I do think that it is one of those dangerous passages that can be read in in really antisemitic ways but I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. I think actually this whole the whole broader context is of him actually saying like this is what this is how we live out um love. This is how we live out what I was just preaching about in the sermon on the mount. And if you don't do that, you're missing out on the party. You're just out there like having a pity party for yourself, and you're missing out on what home could be. Um, mm. and home is expansive. It's it's for everyone. Um, and any and Jesus even said that he says shall come from all over the world. You know this is this is an expansive home. It's it's a home that isn't a a fortress. It's not a home that's um, walled off and cordoned off and carefully protected and property values. Blah. Um, <laughs> but it's it's a home that's for all people. And and we also see then Jesus says to the Roman officer, "Go on home. What you have believed has happened." And the boy was healed that same hour. So. When the home is this is the space of expansiveness when it's when it's a space of shared humanity shared like eating and drinking and meeting of needs, it is also can it is and it should be a space of healing. Um, uh, I think that um, is also evident as we go on through the passage um, when um, Jesus like right after that goes to Peter's house again. I kept noticing. I didn't even like really realize it until I actually picked the passage and started reading it and reading it. There's so much that's happening in homes. It's so important. Jesus arrives at Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is in bed. Another person's in bed, um, resting, um, convalescing, in bed with a high fever. But when Jesus touched her hand, the fever left her and she got prepared a meal for them. Again, this theme of healing, this theme of a shared meal, this theme of we're welcoming people. And in fact, the very next verse that evening, several demon possessed people were brought to Jesus. And when he spoke a single word, all the demons fled and all the sick were healed. Again, you know, this is Peter's house and his mother-in-law has you know, been making food and sharing it. And people who had various illnesses um, are being brought and Jesus is healing them in that space. Um, And this is an example, I think, of what Jesus is saying, what home could be. Mm. Um, And then we go on to to Jesus leaving Peter's house. He notices the crowd is getting bigger. Um, He instructs his disciples to get right across the other side of the lake. Then one of the Jewish religious teachers said to him, teacher, I will follow you no matter where you go. But Jesus said. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I, the Messiah have no home of my own, no place to lay my head. So Jesus is obviously not against houses or homes. Um, I mean, really like in Matthew seven, like just before this passage, he's, 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 basically uses the house as a metaphor for, you know, you know, if you're the wise person and you're listening to my words, you're doing my instructions, you're like the person who builds their house on the rock, on a firm foundation, right? So Jesus uses the house as a metaphor. He's also illustrating throughout this passage, how houses can be spaces of healing, restoration, um, kind of shared humanity and equality, but Jesus doesn't have a house.
0: Mm.
4: And I think that's really important. I think it's a way for Jesus to actually call out property ownership and particularly owning of homes um, in, in a way that really doesn't sit well with uh, many who maybe grew up with home ownership as, as an ideal. And mm-hmm. um, it, it doesn't sit well because also, at least in the United States, and I know this is um, true in other places as well, the house is the main way of generating wealth and security yeah. for most folks um, who are able to access homeownership. And so I think, I mean, I, I remember reading this as, a, as a, a child and thinking like, why do we own a house like I, like I was, I was just taking it literally like what Jesus doesn't have a house. Why do we have, like, why do we own a house? I remember thinking that to myself and hmm. I, I, it's not an accident. I don't think it was just because, you know, Jesus had friends who had houses and he just kind of like couch surf. I think he is actually intentionally not participating in a system of property ownership that was, was Really problematic at the time, uh, in in large part because it wasn't just the home that was owned; it was people who were owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, servants, women who were members of households were were essentially property. Um, and Jesus didn't participate. He did not participate in a system uh, of of ownership of property that actually um, in many Western uh, countries continues to be modeled after those same kinds of structures, the same kinds of like the ways that properties inherited, for example, um, is very similar now um, to what it used to be, you know, 2000 years ago in uh, Greco-Roman culture. Um, and Jesus said, nope, not doing it. I'll just borrow space. Um, And I think that's really, um, really important. And then another of his disciples said, sir, so funny. I don't know. It's like this translation is kind of funny to me, sir. When my father is dead, then I will follow you. And I actually like a different translation of this better. Um, Let me see if I can find it really quickly.
0: What do you have in front of you?
3: I've got. Uh, the Common English Bible and the New English Translation.
4: Okay, well, the, the NIV says another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Hmm. Is that similar to what your translation says, Drew? So, Jared?
3: Common English Bible it says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And the New English Translation, let's see, it says
4: What about the verse before that?
3: Oh, okay, so verse the verse 21. before that, oh, sorry. Another man, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then in this one, NET, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. The da- David Bentley Hart's translation, Lord, allow me first to go away and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So not only does Jesus not own property or participate in the system of property ownership, he is actually encouraging this disciple to do the same because the disciple said, let me go bury my dad. And when when the dad dies, what happens to the property? The property passes, or at least it sh- ostensibly should pass, to the son, the oldest son, um, and that's, that's it. Then the oldest son becomes the heir, owns all of the property instead of the father. And that property includes the house and the servants and the women and you know everything else. And Jesus said, follow me now. Let those who are dead care for their own dead. And when I, I can I can remember reading that growing up and thinking, wow, why is Jesus so harsh? Like, God, can he just like go bury his dad? Like that's so tragic. Like I remember being kind of upset with Jesus. Like, why would you not let somebody just go, you know, say goodbye? But of course I was reading it through a lens that was totally disconnected from the realities of what that actually meant. Because if the son goes back and participates in the burial of, of the father, then basically they're taking up the mantle of heir. They are saying, yes, I'm stepping into this role. I'm here now. Give me my inheritance. And you know, going back to how I was kind of reading this and thinking also about the the story about the prodigal son, I think Jesus is actually calling this follower to a different kind of prodigality. Like, hmm. well, if you go back, that means that you're going to be participating in a system that actually kind of goes against what a home should be. And You should let the people who are already invested in that system take care of that. But if you want to follow me, well, maybe that means you don't pick up that air of mantle or that mantle of airship. Maybe that means you don't pick up owning all of this property and wealth. Maybe that means you don't own people. Maybe that means you also start to create home like I'm creating home. Um, the, The really beautiful thing, I think, well, there are many beautiful things about this passage, but one of them is that I think Jesus is giving us a blueprint for decolonization. Mm -hmm. I think Jesus is giving us a blueprint for hospitality. I think Jesus is giving us a blueprint for equality. And I think a lot of that comes through this lens of what home is and what home could be. Um, And It absolutely flies, not only in the logic of, and and the norms and the rules of that time, but oh my goodness, absolutely today as well. I mean, try talking to, you know, the average white American person on the street about, you know, well, why don't you just like not own a house in a white neighborhood? and not like, you know, chase after that whole, like, my kids are gonna be in quote unquote, good schools and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. it's like you were, it's almost like you are being a heretic because the gospel no longer means following Jesus. It means, uh, home has come to mean uh, protecting oneself and one's own nuclear family um, in in those white um, contexts. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, I I love this passage, and I think it's one of one of the most pure critiques we have um, from Jesus himself uh, of a system that preserves ownership of people and places.
3: Um, yeah, so good. Yeah, wow. so good. Powerful. Um, yeah, you. My mind is going in multiple places all at once. Um, I was thinking as you were talking about. Um, just in the West the way um, you know they talk about like the castle doctrine right in which you know a man and his property or like the property is an extension of like the master of the house so to speak right that was coming to mind and even connections so then I know Kelly Brown Douglas and her work makes those connections with the stand your grounds and the epidemic around violence and so you can already think about home and housing and property and rights and how those things get bound up in terms of racial violence, anti-Black violence, certainly here in the US. Um, but, but also just the way that you, I mean, no it was just beautiful to see that thread of home through each of those, uh, I think was really powerful. But, uh, but I think the profound challenge around um, whether we will just fall in line. And I say this because it's stepping on my own toes, right? The way that, as the the older Drew gets, I'm getting kind of comfortable here, right? Um, And so, you know, I, I used to joke and say, oh yeah, you know, sometime I'm gonna maybe like, visit the Bruderhof and learn things and then start an urban version. Of, you don't hear that from older Drew anymore. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and so, you know, it's, 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 really challenging, but in a way that I think is honest about what does it mean to take Jesus seriously and what ways are we going to reimagine the way that our society is organized that doesn't create that kind of home and belonging for all people where all people can flourish, right? Um, And where we can lean into our interconnected uh, lives where we can share all things in common and not think that this is my slice. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. So there's so much in there that disrupts, certainly deep, deep here, the logics in the U.S. I'm sure, Jared, you can speak to your own context in terms of what that means um for you there in australia but that's it's a it's a powerful and important word for i think for our moment yeah
0: yeah the the only time elizabeth and drew you kind of hear any talk of australian dream it stops at the nuclear family having a home (laughs) Um, and, uh, like even campaigns against, um, the negative gearing, which happens where people have investment properties and, uh, this kind of stuff. Um, even the campaigns that seek to challenge that are around this dream of home ownership. And it's, it's one thing to, um, Uh, uh, challenge that dream once you've got home ownership and it's a completely different thing with the reality of homelessness Um, Mm -hmm. and there's a there's a really simple answer to questions of homelessness it's providing people homes and people will be quick to to say well you know um, uh, some people uh, realities of mental illness um, they might not want to um, live in a house sure give them that option once they've had the home Uh, Because, like, these are basic human rights that we talk about and they're human rights which um, are largely denied in our societies where homelessness is just seen as a reality. And we don't ask questions around, um, uh, you you know, the fact that there is a centurion who has home ownership. And we look at um, the realities of, um, uh, particularly in uh, the United States, the number of veterans who because of complex post-traumatic stress disorder um, uh, were received and uh, awarded medals, but then given no support, um, uh, sacrificed on the altar of American exceptionalism abroad as other places are invaded. And then they come back and they're living with these complexities. And um, what you do with your own demons after you've been involved in um, what you've been told is a, a, a sanctified version of murder um and uh, the complexities of what empires do how empires leave people traumatized and homeless and that's a dynamic in this text i find really interesting i heard this text used um uh, against me in my early 20s um to say actually the fact that you live in a commune is wrong really um, Yeah, which is fascinating. And the fact that um, uh, you're all committed to nonviolence is also wrong uh, because Jesus um, uh, heals a centurion. So why would Jesus go back on what he was saying, um, uh, finish the Sermon on the Mount, and then uh, use the first example being like an enemy? And I'm like, exactly. And they're like, exactly. (laughs) And I'm like, no, no, exactly. Like this is enemy love in action, like um, with a centurion. Um, So the way that this text can be used to um, uh, uh, validate the military um, as something that Jesus is just kind of cool with, um, uh, then distort the text so it becomes anti-Semitic instead of um, uh, anti-religious authority authority which uh, claims to hold the keys um, of who's in and out and Jesus turning that on its head. (laughs) Oh, that's way too close for white American evangelicalism or uh, uh, Australian or uh, other parts of the the world. So instead, we'll just make it about, you know, the Hebrews next door. Um, uh, These kind of realities with this text, I think, get to the heart of um, uh, some of the myths which are deeply bound up with how we understand family, how we understand power. Elizabeth, what you were saying around um, the home as a place of um, uh, holding back hostilities versus hospitality, um, to to paraphrase what you're saying, uh, that's incredibly profound. Um, The talk of exorcisms um, and healing. And by the way, did anybody else pick up Isaiah 53? (laughs) Just being used in the midst there. Um, uh, That doesn't fit the Roman road model um Jesus <laughs> healing that, that's not the fulfillment of um a, a pain bearing which somehow heals no no, no that's not how that text works it, it's claim it, it's 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 a clean read of penal substitutionary atonement there, there's so much stuff in this passage which i think needs to be turned on its head for so many people
3: mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, Elizabeth, I'd be interested to hear, I mean, so I know that in your work as a sociologist, so you're thinking here, but you've been doing a lot of thinking around race and place yeah. um, and housing and racial segregation. Can you kind of tease us between these two things, which you've just been reflecting and what, what, like what's going on in terms, I mean, because isn't, I mean, isn't it's an old thing, right? I mean, these issues are you know, I mean, there's certainly problems in the past and, you know, obviously, (laughs) you know, racial segregation and Jim Crow were bad things, but, you know, King came and he helped stuff out and (laughs) and now it's a fair market. And so, you know, I mean, what's the big deal? I don't get, help us out with the connection between what you're talking about here in this text, what you're reading and what's going on in our world today.
4: Yeah, thank you for that question, Drew. I, the ways that I connect this particular scripture to, you know, what I study, what I observe in the world are related to very much to this idea of what property ownership means and why it means what it means. And, uh, and one of the, one of the really important things is to note is that first of all, in, Pretty much every like white settler society, um, America, USA, Canada, um, uh, even Australia. Um, I've done a little bit of research. I don't obviously don't know that context as well. Um, um, and even in contexts that that uh, like, for example, like in in um, some parts of Europe, like Sweden, um, which is another uh, place I study, um, the property ownership is um, really essentially built off of stolen land right? right and so so you know the the idea that we can own property um, is fundamentally entwined with dispossession um, yeah. of indigenous peoples um, and I think Jesus is calling attention to that right um, a little bit in in what he's and what he's saying in this passage which, um, is you know obviously like there were differences in sort of like Jewish and Roman um, ideas of of ownership and property, and of course we we can go like we can talk about like jubilee and what what um, what that means in in the context of like the Jewish tradition um, versus the Roman tradition, which um, uh, in many ways you know like white Western um, kind of is modeled after, mm-hmm. um, but. This idea of like Roman possession, Rome, Rome, the Roman Empire was an empire. It was a, <laughs> it was an empire um, that was built off of dispossessing people um, and grabbing and taking that land, and then saying, "Okay, now it's it's mine, it's mine." And guess what? Now I'm going to go attach value to it, mm. um, and and that's quite literally what happened um, in in the US, it happened in Canada um, and in Australia as well. Um, yeah. uh, it's it absolutely is is fundamental um, to any idea of property ownership is this is dispossession. Um, and then related to that, that is that any any mark any housing market that is commodified which is to say any housing market in which housing has to be purchased um, and in which housing is not a human right, um, Mm -hmm. you know, like as Jared was mentioning earlier, um, every single commodified housing market that I'm aware of um, is racialized. That means that that housing market was specifically organized around white supremacy and racism, um, specifically to entwine Monetary value with property with racial hierarchy—that um, is literally how housing market, like contemporary modern housing markets in white settler societies were um, created. Um, it, it's it's their it's their origins. It's their DNA. Um, and so, you know, obviously, like in Jesus's time, um, the, the system of racialization that we're that we're witness to today wasn't in existence. Um, so so I, I mean, I won't I won't stretch his his words to, like, say that he was talking about racialization. But I I do think that what he's talking about, um, this rejection of a system of ownership um, that fundamentally views people as property, that, that injects inequality into um, social life. Mm. Jesus rejects that. Um, and so likewise, like when I'm studying housing, when I'm studying segregation, um, to me, there is no way to fully understand the fact that in the United States, um, white people and people of color are just as segregated now, if not more so than they were before King. Um, yeah. Than they were before the passage of fair housing legislation beginning in 1968 all the way up to 1977. Um, it, it's, it, when, yeah, I, I actually started a lot of my research in part because housing is so fundamental, not only to like having shelter in, in, in the United States, but where one lives gives one access to local amenities in ways that yeah. isn't necessarily true and um, at least not to the same extent in um, in Europe um, or um, um, well in Canada it actually is very similar but maybe not as much in Australia but but this idea and that it's our the homes-
0: difference sorry to inter- but it's the difference between um, uh-huh. mixed economies where uh, uh, there is capitalism um, but and and certainly after um, the 80s um, neoliberalism uh, but the, it's still uh, social amenities are uh, socialized. Um, while in America, um, it's a plutocratic capitalism where firefighters um, yep. coming to your home literally depends on what neighborhood and it's not a public service. Um, did you sign up for that? Uh, that being true of university uh, as well, like for for many of us around the world, when we hear Americans talk about those realities, like getting into good schools, yep. um, that's horrific for the exactly. rest of us.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And so um, the, yeah, it's, it's, but it's, it's fundamental. So I, I got into studying housing and I got into studying segregation because it is so, I, I would go so far as to say it is actually the foundation of systemic racism, systemic racialization in U.S. society because housing has become so tied to our schools, to our um, employment opportunities, to our to transportation, to health, to exposure to hazardous waste. To I mean, like pretty yes. much anything. Everything like housing is, is housing is yep. tied to it. So I got into studying housing for that reason because I thought if I can figure something out, maybe it will have like this kind of domino effect. But when I got into studying it, it was like many of my. Colleagues, my socio- sociolo- sociologist colleagues, um, most of whom, at least in my area, were white men, were studying segregation and housing in ways that basically removed people and racism from the equation. It was like, oh, the Fair Housing Act happened. Things are better now. You know, the progress mm. narrative. Like it's right. you yeah. know, it's fine. So if there's any, it's it's just it's discrimination now. It's just mm. You know, it's personal prejudice. Um, and that is a, in my reading, a fundamental, like, really terrible error to make when you're talking about um, uh, slapping a, a basically like a label on uh, an entire market that says, okay, this isn't racist anymore. Here's the Fair Housing Act. Okay, now we're good but that act did nothing. And the the subsequent acts did very little to change how housing actually happens in our society. Um, And by our society, I mean like US society. Um, So for example, with with one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Junia Howell, we looked at how um, home values have changed between 1980 and 2015. And I know that in Canada, the system of home residential home valuation is very, it, it was modeled after the U S system. So hmm. it's, there's similar dynamics happening there. Wow. And I didn't get to do too much reading, but I, I did read a little bit about Australia's, um, appraisal, um, evaluation system as well. And it has very similar language. So I wouldn't yep. be surprised if it were if similar. We as well. it. Yeah. Yep. But, but the, um, the entire premise of, of home valuation is built on this idea that um, homogenous, socially homogenous neighborhoods yep. are desirable. Especially, the most desirable ones are the white homogenous neighborhoods. This is still to this day. I'm, I'm not. This is. I'm not making. This still to this day, they are the most desirable. Appraisers do not quantify. What desirability means? Desirability is like one of those code words that they use to right. signal, like, oh, this is a white space, so obviously, yes. like, yep. right? Um, and and continue to use the exact same methods to appraise homes that they used from the inception um, of the appraisal industry, which was explicitly racist. So I'm sh- I'm guessing a lot of your guests have heard the phrase, the word redlining. Um, the the same kinds of methods are being used today. So um, Dr. Hal and I. It looked at um, appraisal values between 1980, just after the passage of the Community Reinvestment Act in 1977, which was supposed to kind of help with some of this stuff. We looked from 1980 to 2015 and racial inequality in home values between white neighborhoods in the U.S. It was 107 largest metro areas, um, white neighborhoods in the U.S. and Black and Latinx neighborhoods um, doubled between 1980 and 2015, holding constant you know, comparing similar socioeconomic status, home size, amenities, all the stuff, blah, 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 that people who um, don't like to acknowledge racism um, say are the real reasons that we see inequity. But of course, that's that's not the case. So so for me, these issues are fundamental. Like it's it's um, the, the system of property ownership that we have available to us um, in the United States in Canada, I'm guessing also in other places like Australia, any place where housing is at least somewhat commodified, Mm -hmm. Um, they're also racialized and they're based on dispossession of indigenous peoples from the land. So for me, it's, it's it's absolutely central to connect what Jesus is doing in this passage to how we live our lives. And like quite literally, like where do we live? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What yeah. what is our housing? What what is it? Um, what kinds of things are we like? What are we participating in? Yeah, um,
3: yeah, that's yeah. good. That's good. Yeah, for me, um, the game changing moment for me to in terms of thinking about race and place theologically happened when Willie James Jennings came to Messiah to speak. And he gave this talk on like race and place and creation and all this stuff. And from that point forward, not just for me, it was for my institution changed from that point. So Mm -hmm. since then we have um, a Center for Public Humanities run by Jean Corey. actually she's retiring, but they've focused all of their attention now to race and place in our region. You know, um, and telling the stories of the lands, um, and and we have, and because Harrisburg is such a small city, like it's just like this perfect microcosm to just see everything. Like it's just everything you can imagine has happened here in very evident terms, and so we have. Um, all the redlining, I mean, of course, there's Matt everywhere, right? So we have all that stuff. Um, You can see the ways in which um, black communities were forced, like we're, we're the capital of Pennsylvania, the capital complex itself is built um, on what formerly was an African-American community, right? They were wow. displaced from that community and forced the, the whole complex could be built there. You have right across the river on the West shore. Um, on the East shore, we call the West shore, the white shore, right? Um, tons, I mean, we've had students who've done research, like one one community was like a third of the homes had racially restricted deeds on them, right? Um, it's just all over the place. And people like act today act like, oh, you know, we don't know how it happens. No, all the sundown towns, all that stuff, like, Everything that you can imagine has happened here. Um, and so and so we're we're working with trying to work with churches now to tell more truthful stories, right? Mm-hmm. To help us think about that. And so I know that this is really important work, but it is, I mean, to even have the courage to enter fully into the conversation, right? It's yeah. not tight and defensive, but open and vulnerable to what God might want from us here in our place right yeah um that's a it's a dangerous dream that can lead to lots of flourishing but it can yeah. also lead to hard hearts right and so um i'm i'm praying we're on the early stages of some of the stuff with the churches at least yeah. um, but we're praying that you know that we can maybe Reimagine because it does. It as you mentioned, so eloquent. I mean, everything, right? Schools, yes. public e- funding for education, access to s- grocery stores, right? Everything yeah. is rooted in in um, race and place and housing markets. Um, but yeah, so thank you. Yeah, it's just it's these are really important conversations um, that have to be had in the church in particular That's right. followers of Jesus who claim to follow the one who says, I have no place to lay my head. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, how is that going to disrupt our lives and begin to tell new stories, um, that we can embody that story in our own communities. So, yeah, so powerful.
0: And I think it makes like our Lord's teaching that, uh, as he so rightly named gets, um, Uh, racialized as um, anti-Semitic, be it a a soft or hard reading, that is a replacement theology. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Ironically, while we can't read um, uh, race back into um, this text as it is like post-enlightenment kind of Mm -hmm. understanding of race, xenophobia has always been a reality for communities, the the fear of the other. And Jesus is directly challenging that fear, Um, And almost that redlining of the age to come, um, uh, (laughs) the world healed and is saying um, uh, your ethnic identity isn't what means you you get a share of this. It's actually people from all over will participate in this. And so um, if heaven is looking for a home amongst all of creation, even that future hope will be surprised about how, mixed all, all those kind of um, uh, it's, it is not a gated community. Maybe I should put it like that. <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah, exactly. And you know, what's so interesting. I was just thinking while you were uh, talking, Jared, is that, you know, then we see, we see the church in acts, I think it's acts four or eight, maybe both, but what, it, what do they do? They're, they're selling their property. And they're sharing it with everyone, right? So they're actually like doing that. They're They're actually like showing, like we understand it's not our identity that gets us anywhere. It's how are we living out this love? How are we living out what this means? How are we taking care of each other in material, physical ways? Yeah. Um, with each other not being delineated and circumscribed by identity, but each other being expansive with each other being this idea of the biggest possible table you can imagine um, in a home, mm-hmm. which is God's God's home, God's kingdom, God's place for all of us. Um, yeah, yeah
3: good. The whole time that you were going through, I had Acts 2 and 4 in my head, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that you Mm -hmm. kind of brought it right, because that's what was uh, kind of controlling my imagery. And I Mm -hmm. imagine that for some folks, the idea when they hear homelessness, like, well, what are you saying? We're not going to be taken care of, but they can't imagine that there's something even better, Right. Um, um, that this it's not uh, everyone in deprivation it's actually flourishing for everyone um, when we lean into this dream and to think that that's it's a really powerful um, invitation for all of us yeah, mm-hmm.
4: yeah. yeah to avoid well, it's, that it's, scarcity mindset and, and just know that there is enough there is home yeah. for everyone mm-hmm.
0: so friends there's your altar call um, if you have homes open them up um uh be part of the response to to homelessness um and use it as a model that advocates in a larger society for um the ending of homelessness um elizabeth thank you so much for your time this has been incredibly rich i'm aware that there's a whole bunch of people who have questions for you um and uh if uh you want to join our patreon um dear listener uh that is open to everyone um but elizabeth i'm wondering if if you can pray for us in the releasing of our homes for others as a way of closing out this part of our gathering?
4: Sure, I'd love to. God, you are our home and you have shown us what it means to be home and to share home with others. We ask that you would Enlarge our capacity, enlarge our vision and imagination for what it means to expansively love, to share humanity, to be intimate with people and heal in the spaces that we often call home. Mm. We ask that you would help us reflect critically on what it means to participate in systems of property ownership, and how we can navigate what it means to be a follower of you and um, someone who lives in in a society with constructs that are very difficult to avoid. Thank you for everyone who's gathered here. I thank you for all of the, the Inverse listeners and community. Um, and thank you for the ways that uh, you continue to um, show up and help us do justice and love love mercy and walk humbly with you amen amen
1: amen the inverse podcast is proudly supported by you the listener and if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse